So I'll tell you what, before we jump in with what we're going to be studying today, let's take a moment, let's pray. I feel like it's very important. Father, please bless our minds and understanding. Give us wisdom. And may your word penetrate our hearts in such a way as to where we are rejoicing and filled with great joy of the idea of what a personal Savior and God you are. We pray that in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So if you would take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 21, please. It's all right with you guys. I'm just going to stay up here the whole time. Think that'll work? No, I doubt it. If you have your handouts as well, Genesis 21 in our Bibles and our handouts, we've been going through something called foundational framework. And what this is, is we're trying to lay the foundations for everything that comes about in the New Testament. You cannot understand what's going on in the New Testament unless you have a grasp of the major events of the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't make any sense. The introduction of the church doesn't make any sense. The setting aside of Israel for a time because of their rebellion and hardness of heart makes no sense. You can't understand any of the major doctrines until you find the roots of those doctrines found in the Old Testament. So that's why we're taking this time. Just to go through very quickly with you, some things that we see, some truths that we've covered. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. He wants to be known, and this is how he has revealed himself in a special manner to us. Number two, God is the eternal sovereign creator, and all that he creates is good, or all that he creates is consistent with who he is. Number three, man is a responsible agent held to a moral standard, and that moral standard is set by God himself. Since he is in charge and since he is the creator, he alone sets the standard. Number four, sin originates within a person, separating us from God. If you want to know where sin comes from, we simply look inside. That's where it originates. The last one that we just covered recently, God declares one righteous by faith alone, apart from works. No works on our behalf is involved. It is simply faith that is responding to the gospel when we hear it. And so in Genesis chapter 21, if you notice, we're starting to skip forward and, and not necessarily hit on some things, but what we're trying to do is cover the major events. So chapter 21, verse 1, Then the Lord took note of Sarah, and he had said, uh, sorry, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Now, how many of you with the word promise there have a little number next to the word promise? And it, and it tells you something in your margin. Anybody? Raise your hand if you've got that. Okay, so some of you do. And what is the, what is the other alternate translation that could also be valid? What is that? Spoken, which is in alignment with what? His what? His word. Exactly. In other words... God said he was going to do this, and now God is doing exactly as he said. Again, major emphasis on the trust, trustworthiness of his word. Now, if you notice, the last time, last week when we saw Sarah, we weren't calling her Sarah, we were calling her Sarai. Her name has been changed. Sarai means princess, or my princess is what it means. But this idea of changing her name to Sarah has the whole idea of being the mother of the nations. Now, this is kind of comical at this time. And the reason is, is because Sarah is 90 years old. 
Does it sound like she's going to be the mother of the nations? Not at all. Anybody here in their 90s? Are you thinking about being the mother of the nations? <laughs> no, not today, right? It's not even on the radar. We're not even looking in that direction. However, God made a promise, did he not? Okay. So notice, verse 2, So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had what? Spoken to him. At the exact same time that God said it would happen. God's doing everything he said he would do. Now, Abraham, when we last looked at him, his name was Abram. The idea is exalted father was what his name meant. But God came in and wanted to change that so that he would be considered the father of a multitude is the idea. Now, if you've been in church and if you've spoken Christianese for any number of years, you kind of lose the mentality of what in the world is a multitude. Do we know how big a multitude is? What's that? I love those type of answers. A lot. Well, think about it. Jesus fed the 5,000. And the 5,000 was only the head count of who? The men. Were there women and children there? Okay. It says he fed the multitude. Even if it was only the 5,000, that is a lot. You guys are right. Okay. Oh, okay. No, it's a lot of people. So when we talk about the idea of multitude, we are talking about Abraham, you're going to have a lot of kids. Now, how old is Abraham? Does anybody know? He's 100 years old. Anybody in here 100? Not yet. But even if you're close, would you be thinking about having kids? Is it on the radar? I'm sure some of you see my little boy running around and go, no, <laughs> right? Can't catch him too fast. <laughs> Just like that. God does as he says. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And the idea of this name speaks of laughter. And here is the reason why. is because whenever the promise was reiterated to Abram, back before when God showed up in a physical form and had two angels flanking him who later went on to Sodom and Gomorrah, and God stayed behind before Abraham, whenever it was told Sarah is going to conceive and have a son, Sarah was back in the tent laughing about it. I love it because God called her out on it too. Why is she laughing? I'm not laughing. Yes, you are. And then there's silence, right? How do you deal with a disputing situation where you know somebody's lying? You call them out on it right then and there. Good, good point, right? God's showing us something really good about interpersonal relationships and communication. But not only that, but now it's, it's actually taken on a type of double meaning. Let's see what that is. Verse 4, Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. In other words, there's going to be great joy over it. And here is the reason why. In this type of Middle Eastern setting, if you were a barren woman, you, it was considered a mark of shame against you. It was, you were considered an object of derision. In fact, did we not see last week 
the whole idea of that when Hagar conceived by Abraham and was able to do what Sarah was unable to do, did she not look with contempt upon Sarah? It was actually something to be embraced and used as a method of pride. Notice that that's not fruitful at all, but that's how they viewed it in that society. Now, it says here, verse 7, And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in my old age. And here's why this is very interesting is because how long was it between the time that God last spoke to Abraham and when he spoke to him again? Does anybody remember what we saw? It was 13 years, 13 years of silence, which means this is very interesting. Abraham could have been under the impression that Ishmael was the fulfillment of this child of promise. God had nothing else to say on the matter, at least as far as Abraham knew because he didn't speak. Now all of a sudden God shows up and says, this time next year, your wife is going to have a son. Oh, wait a minute, she's kind of up there, God. Are you sure? Interesting. Verse 8, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. God has a habit of wanting to remove all choices and rationale from a situation so that we will recognize that it's only by him that these blessings come. Why did they have to be in the land for 24 years before he finally fulfilled this promise that they made? Because they had to get their physical mentalities their capabilities as human beings out of the way so that God could show up and do the supernatural. It's ridding us of all rational thought, or let's say it more this way, naturalistic thought. Sometimes we're brought up in such a way to where if I can taste it, touch it, smell it, see it, and hear it, those are the only things that are real. That's only 50% of the equation. The supernatural is real. The problem is, is we just don't think that way. We would rather rationalize things, chalk them up to coincidences. And the reason is, is because it distances us from accountability to a personal God. However, if he is there, which he is, and if he has created, which he has, and if we are his creation, which we are, notice the accountability is heightened because we have someone that we're answerable to. Does everybody see that? So it's real easy to think just in the realm of the physical and to pretend that the rest of it doesn't exist. The greatest deceivers in our lives are not Satan, it's ourselves. We'll deny truth quickly. This child was a gift. In fact, my wife and I were told by doctors we would never have children. Surprise, surprise, surprise. In fact, I can't tell you how surprised I was when she said, I'm pregnant. Because you know what you do, you skip a couple of octaves and you go, what? <laughs> right? I think the immediate thinking in my mind was, but I'm 39. I wonder if Abraham thought, but I'm 100. <laughs> Makes you wonder. And so we named him Nathaniel. In the Hebrew spelling, gift of God. Told against all odds we wouldn't have him and here he is. You've got children, they're precious, right? And, you, and let's be honest, 
your kids are a little bit more precious than everybody else's kids, aren't they? They just are, right? Yeah, because they're yours. There's something about that attachment. In fact, can everybody maybe see how this whole conundrum that's cropped up between Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, how there could be this, there's a rift. And there's a rift, the children might not even be old enough yet. There's just a rift because of the makeup and the distribution of Abraham's seed in comparison with who they are unified with. You see that? You understand that? That's kind of the problems that we deal with whenever families get together and you have stepchildren and that kind of things. It really takes a lot of compromise, a lot of thinking, a lot of soul searching, I'm sure, to get into that situation and to want to be fair and honest and loving in that. Abraham's dealing with this. This is his family situation. And so it causes us to turn over to chapter 22. Now it came about... After these things, that God, what's the word? Tested Abraham. Now, I think this is important to understand. Abraham is not any different from you and me. He just had kids at a different age. He's a person, flesh and blood, breathes air, eats food, walks, talks, just like you and me. And so this idea of God stepping in and testing isn't anything unique. This is how God develops his people. How many of you are in the James study on Sunday nights? Good. By the way, all the hunters need to be tithing 10% today since they're not here. God likes to test people, doesn't he? In fact, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you experience testings of various kinds. What? Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God whittles his children. And I use the word whittle on purpose. He has no problem sitting in a rocking chair out on the front porch with a raw piece of wood and pulling out his knife and whittling his kids into the image of his son. That's what he does. There is no greater goal that you and I will ever reach in our lives. No idea of career attainment, no idea of financial security, no idea of marital bliss that will be worth a darn if we are not being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And so notice, this is how God demonstrates this. And he puts this forward to us as a lesson. He is going to show us something that is insanely profound. And I hope that it punches all of us in the throat before we leave. This is a violent sermon. I got pins, right? So notice, he tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son. Now, if we just stop there, that's ambiguous enough, right? Uh, Ishmael or Isaac, right? Leaves a choice up to him. Take now your son, your only son. Hmm. Talking about the firstborn son or the secondborn son? 
You talk about the son born of flesh or you talk about the son born of promise? You talk about the one that came about by natural means or you talk about the one that came about by supernatural means? Here's the one that gets you in the gut. Whom you, what? Love. This is the first mention of the word love in the Bible. This is the first occurrence. And notice that God is doing it to get Abraham's attention. Now here's what's interesting about this word love. It is actually the word, we probably are familiar with the Old Testament character of Ahab, correct? You familiar with that? That Hebrew name, Ahab, is the actual idea of having such a deep and profound emotional attachment to someone that you don't ever want to let go. It's kind of like my relationship with Tom. <laughs> Except the opposite, right? Your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Just in case you weren't clear who we're talking about, right? And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, this verse is pregnant with meaning. First off, the idea of the valley or the place of Moriah. Does anybody know what happens later in Moriah? It is actually where Solomon builds the temple. In fact, I, and I don't know this, the text doesn't say this, and I don't know of any Jewish folklore that points in this direction, but that's not inerrant anyway. But I wouldn't be surprised that God would actually have Abraham get up and go to the exact place where the Holy of Holies would later be built in the middle of the temple because that is where the blood was sprinkled as an atonement for Israel upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I can't prove that, but I wouldn't be surprised that's what he did. Why is that? you ever get an opportunity and you want a very fascinating study, and it's worth a Google, okay, so you can Google it, uh, but the theology of sacred spaces, if you ever want to look that up, the theology of sacred spaces, and pretty much what the doctrine says is, when God says, I will be worshiped at this place, you worship him at the place he chooses and nowhere else, or you are in disobedience. And, and, and here's the thing, you can't understand all the rest of 2 Samuel if you don't understand the theology of sacred spaces. So it's very important, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel, um, 2 Kings, First and 2 Kings. You can't understand those unless you understand the theology of sacred spaces. So if you ever want a good Bible study to look up, important place. So notice, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Does anybody remember where we saw the burnt offering before? Anybody remember that? burnt offering. Now remember, the law hasn't been given yet, so we don't have all the parameters lined out for the burnt offering. It's actually back in chapter 8, verse 20 of Genesis. The ark comes to rest on the top of Mount Ararat. Noah comes off, and the very first thing he does is he takes the extra animals that he brought with him, and he sacrifices them to the Lord as a burnt offering. Now this was an intense sacrifice, because you took your hand and you put it on the head of the animal, confessing your sin over the top of it, and it's like a transference takes place of that sin. Then you kill the animal, skin the animal, and then you burn the animal in such a way as to where the animal burns for about a 24-hour period. And the reason is, is because it wasn't just an atonement for sin, of which it was, but it was also the burning away of anything impure or evil that we have dabbled in, and it's a type of picture of cleansing. Now pause for a second. 
Let's read the verse again. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. If God asked this of you, what would you do? Can you imagine the mentality of thinking through the burnt offering? Why couldn't it be, take my son there and let's go fishing at the Dead Sea, you know? Why couldn't it have been, well, let's travel up to this place and see what would later become the promised land, you know, or where the, where the children of Israel would enter in. Why can't it be that we're going to go see something else? But the idea is, is take this son whom I promised you and held on to for 24 years, and finally your own wife brings this child forward. You have great joy. Everybody has laughter. It's exceedingly good time. Kill him, skin him, burn him. Faith in the promise. I didn't ask for a reply, man. Don't steal my thunder. I'm having to be extra dramatic right now in order to hit home a point. I asked if you'd do it. Would you do it? Would you do it? I mean, take a look. Taylor's right next to you. Maybe you don't want to look at Taylor about that. <laughs> Would you do it? Well, yeah, yeah. Would you do it? Now, here's the options. Here's the options. Let's think about it. Option A, obey God, lose the child. Option B, disobey God, hopefully keep the child. Suffer the consequences. Pretty weighty, isn't it? It's not an easy decision. But there's something profound that happens here. And see, the problem with this is as we walk through this, we're too familiar with this story. Think, try, to, try, to, try to shed, try to shed everything that you've read about this story. In fact, when we come across this maybe in our Bible reading, we might sometimes even skip over it because we just know it too well. Try to shed that and think about listening to it for the first time. Put yourself in Abraham's sandals. Imagine God speaking to him and calling on him to do this. Try to take yourself back to that point when you first heard this, what was going on. Because a lot of things that people love to conclude about this. Well, God is a child abuser. That's the reason why. They obviously don't understand what's going on. That is a comment that is ignorant of the scriptures totally. So notice verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering. There it is again just for emphasis. And arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Do we know what's going on mentally in Abraham's mind? Can you imagine having to prepare the wood to burn your child? Can you imagine the nerves that are probably going on? Can you imagine your mind's probably racing like crazy? I'm getting ready to lose my child, and I'm preparing the means of which it's going to happen. It's emotionally striking. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. 
And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we, no pronoun, will worship and return to you. Now, this is the first thing that Abraham has said since he said, here I am, Lord, right? Have you noticed that Abraham hasn't spoken? God comes to you and says, hey, your son, your only son, the son that you love, you know who I'm talking about, Nathaniel, sacrifice to me as a burnt offering. Do you think I'm going to open my mouth and say something? Especially me, right? La, 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 la. But God, but God, but God, but God. Notice we have no inkling of a response, an objection. We have no emotion. Is Abraham just a robot and he can't do anything else? Yes, Lord. Is that what it is? No. So notice, we will return to you. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, which is interesting. Here, carry this. Imagine your mind. You're going to carry this, and then later on, we're going to lay you on it and sacrifice you. We're going to kill you. And he laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife so that the two of them walked on together. Now, I can't help reading this next verse, 7, without a little bit of comedy. Okay? And here's the reason why. Pay close attention to what goes on. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now picture it. They're walking along. He's got this wood. Man, this wood sure is heavy, but we're going to do a burnt offering, so dad's got the fire, and there's his knife, and We ain't got nothing to sacrifice. Uh, Dad? Surely not, right? Surely Isaac would never come to the conclusion that he would be the one that's going to be put on the altar and his life taken. But it had to have been kind of rough when the light started to come on and he started to get this realization, right? Notice it says here, verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. How does Abraham know this? Did God reveal this to him? Did God say, take your son, your only son, whom you love, go and sacrifice him? And on the way, or when you get there, it just so happens that I got a lamb hanging out for you to go over so you don't have to take the lamb all that way. I mean, you wouldn't want to get tired and all this stuff like that. I mean, you're going to kill it anyway. Why, why take care of it? Notice none of that's revealed. And yet Abraham has this focus, complete focus. He's not deterred in the least. We don't find a tear. We don't find a tremble. We don't find his knees buckling. We don't even see any sweat come off of his brow. God will provide. 
Verse 9, then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. And here's when it really dawned on Isaac, right? Bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Pause. We have to get rid of this thinking that God will never give us more than we can handle. That is not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say he will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But it does not say he will not give you more than you can handle. God is in the business of giving his people more than they can handle. Why? Because when you have nowhere else to turn, we finally turn to him. There's something going on in Abraham that this type of burden is too much to bear. And so mentally, it has already been committed in a certain direction. Notice that he is walking by faith that God is going to do something. What if he doesn't? What if he doesn't show up? Will you still bring the knife down? Will you still take the time to skin your son? Will you still take the time to burn him for a 24-hour period? Will you still do that because God asked it of you? It seems crazy, doesn't it? He moves on. Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. Everybody pay attention and hold on because this messes a lot of people up. Four, here's your explanation. Now I what? Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, a lot of people have problems with this. How many people have heard of the idea of open theism? Anybody heard of open theism? Okay, just a couple people have heard of it. The idea of open theism is that God does not know anything beyond the here and the now right at this moment. The idea is, in fact, is if you never said your name out loud and if no one ever called you by your name, there's no way that he could ever know your name. He only knows all things in the present that are made manifest. We have a word for that. It's called heresy, okay? But we got to deal with this passage. And this is one of the passages that those believers go to and they say, well, I mean, it says right here. There was obviously something going on in Abraham's life that he didn't know. He wasn't for sure that he would go to this extent to commit himself to kill this child. But now that I know he's raised the blade and it was getting ready to come down, now God knows that he fears God over wanting to hold on to this precious possession of his son. How do you deal with that? Let me ask you the question, does God know everything? In fact, God knows everything actual and potential. He knows what would happen in a situation, and he also knows what will happen in a situation. That's not a problem at all. In fact, we call that what? What's the, what's the $5 word for it? Omniscience. He is omniscient. Omni, everything, and then science, the idea from knowledge. He knows all of it. But one thing we have to realize is that God does not know things experientially. Does that make sense? He knows what is actual and he knows what is possible. But for instance, does God know what it is to commit a sin? Because God can't sin, can he? 
Therefore, if he can't sin, he doesn't know what it feels like to commit a sin. Does he know what the feeling of the burden of sin is? Yes. In fact, his son bore all of the sins on himself on the cross. But actually, the rationale of going through and committing a sin that is against the truthfulness of who he is, God doesn't have that experience. Does God know what it is to die? I'll tell you this, he didn't before the cross, did he? God did not have the experience of what it was to actually suffer human death at that time until Jesus Christ gave up his life. Here's what you see. God knows all things possible and actual, the probability and what is taking place. But notice how he personally walks with Abraham through this situation. In this experience, at that very moment, to experience. Abraham, what will you do in the moment? Does everybody see how personal he is in experiencing that with Abraham? Do you see that? Do you get that? How many people don't get it? Okay, so we're grasping it. How many people are asleep? People are awake. We should maybe have the coffee cart come down the aisle, kind of like in a plane. Hand this down, please. Right? Okay, just make sure everybody's with me. Are we listening? Are we engaged? Sometimes I need that affirmation for just myself. Okay? So, preach, brother, preach. All right? So notice, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and he looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son in the place of his son the ram becomes a substitution of the offering that was called upon abraham called the name of that place the lord will provide or we would say yahweh jireh is how you say it in hebrew the lord will provide yahweh will supply it and it says to this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, now pause, the angel of the Lord is speaking from the location of heaven and the very first two words he says in the second appearance is by myself. Now, getting ready to make a major truth claim and this is how we know that the angel of the Lord is actually the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. By myself, I have sworn, declares the what? Lord, there he is. Everybody see this? So when we talk about the angel of the Lord manifesting himself or the messenger of the Lord might be a better way to understand it. We're talking about Jesus showing up on the scene and communicating something. I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now pause, we got a little bit of a problem. When we looked at Genesis chapter 12, we saw that there were three things that were promised, right? Land, offspring, blessing, right? The land being the land of Israel stretches as far as the Nile River to the Euphrates River that runs into the Persian Gulf. The blessing 
would be the fact that through his seed would come the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the offspring be the fact that he would physically have offspring and that we would grow into a big nation and that nation today is Israel, correct? Everybody with me on that? But doesn't it seem like the language here is making that contingent upon if Abraham obeys or not? I mean, look at it. It says there, verse 16, by myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, what if Abraham didn't do that? Does the promise still stand? Is God still faithful? I mean, remember whatever he had, Abraham cut the animals in two, set them in two halves, and then he put Abraham to sleep, and then he set a flaming torch and a flaming pot passed in between. It was the blood brother's handshake, and only God passed. It was unconditional in nature. Abraham didn't get to walk through because all of the results are contingent upon God. Why does God respond here and say then, because you have done this, this is what I will do? Is God contradicting himself? No, actually, here's what we find out. We find out that the promise is true for Abraham's line. And if Abraham had been unfaithful in this instance, God would have easily passed over him. He wouldn't have sought or received, forgive me, not sought, received any of the blessings for his time on earth there and would have began this process with Isaac. That is God's pattern. God makes a promise that is unconditional, of which he will fulfill. But when disobedience comes into the mix, he passes over that generation or passes over that people and moves on to the next one in order to still fulfill his promise. Prime example is the children of Israel. First generation out of Exodus had an opportunity to walk into the promised land. It's everything we're talking about in Deuteronomy right now. And they didn't believe the Lord and they got scared and didn't inherit the land. They wander around until all of those people that were culpable for that situation, die. And then the second generation, their kids walk up. Now they don't have a choice. Will you respond like they did and die in disobedience? Or will you obey and receive the inheritance? If Abraham would have disobeyed, God would have passed over him, but still used his seed. That's the idea. Now here's a question. How come Abraham didn't say anything? How come he didn't object how come he didn't ask God, are you sure? Did I hear you right? Or we would say around here, are you communicating properly and clearly? Right? Am I getting clear communication from you, God? Because it sounds like you said to take my son, my only son, whom I love, Isaac. And I know you didn't say that because you just gave him to me, but now you want me to offer him to you. Are you sure? Would you have questioned God? I'll tell you straight up, I would have. I would have given you the whole, what? Here's the amazing thing about the Bible. It is a perfect commentary on itself. And so we get actually a glimpse into the noggin of Abraham. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. The only choices that we saw beforehand where you can either obey God and lose your promised child or you can disobey God Hopefully keep the child and suffer the consequences of disobedience. This is a beautiful thing about a supernatural way of thinking. Is that there was actually a third option that was sitting there the whole time that the text doesn't readily tell us about. 
But the author of Hebrews has been blessed in such a way to unfold it for us. In Hebrews chapter 11, look down at verse 17. By what? Faith. Believing what God has said. By faith. Abraham, when he was what? Tested. Same event. Offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, pause. What promises? Land, offspring, blessing, right? Those are the three. The one who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten, his unique son, the one that actually came from his loins, even though he was 100 and his lady was 90. They still brought forth the child, just so it's clear. And look what it says in the next verse, verse 18. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Stop. Read it one more time. In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Is that true? Is it true? You don't sound very convinced. I'm just getting a couple of marbles rattling around. and that's. Is it? Church, is it true? It's true. Why is it true? Because God said so. Because everything that God says is truth. And so when he is called on to sacrifice his son, the reason why we don't see any anxiety, the reason why we don't find sweat, the reason why he doesn't issue into a panic, the reason why he doesn't make an appointment with a counselor, the reason why he doesn't turn and run in the other direction, the reason why he doesn't try to hide his son from God, the reason why he throws his knife into the sea, none of that stuff happens. The reason why we don't hear anything from him and he gathers up his people and he chops the wood without a word and he puts it on his son and they go traveling off to this place and no one says a peep about this situation is verse 19. He considered, that word considered, very important in the Greek. It's the word logizomai. It's the idea of he calculated it. He carefully gave consideration and thought and rolled it around in his mind. There was something that was occupying space up here that caused him to do what he did. And here's what it is. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type. So I didn't get everybody busting out their glory fans like I was hoping you would, so let's read it one more time. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type. As a type of who? Christ raising from the dead. You say, what in the world does that mean? It means that when he's thinking through the process, it's not obedience or disobedience that's on his mind. Whether he was doing well, keeping score with God wasn't even on his radar. It wasn't even this idea of, well, what if I don't? What if I do? The benefits or the consequences weren't on there. The idea was God has said this. And I can go as far as to sacrifice my son to him with a pure and clean and undiluted heart. Because if need be, Yahweh will raise this child from the dead 
in order to bring his word to fulfillment. His word will be true and death can't stop it. Does everybody get the excitement in this? See, God's word is so true, it makes me uncomfortable. You mean I can't die and get away from it? No, it's eternal. It stretches beyond that. If God made a promise to you and me, he fulfills it. It's still going to happen. Death can't stop it. Our sin can't stop it. God is so great. He is so sovereign. He walks around it. He deals with it and still sees a way through. He's so sovereign that you and I can make whatever choice we want to make without any manipulation of him putting us in a direction of evil, even though we're committing evil, and he can still come on the other side and be glorious and exalted, apart from everything we would seek to do in our lives to thwart that ultimately. That's our God. That's our God. He provides, and he provides beyond our thinking. Abraham wasn't thinking about anything but one point, resurrection. I can offer up my son without any apprehensions. Why? Because God will raise him. Because God can raise the dead. That's what he can do. He will always keep his word. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that hopefully this story hasn't been so familiar to us that we can still wrap our minds, our hands around it. We can still grasp the impossible nature of this calling of this test and still realize that even when you test us, your word doesn't change. If need be, you will raise the dead to fulfill it. Father, maybe this is revealed something in us. I know that every time I go back to it, I'm startled at my unbelief in the great lengths that you will go to to be consistent with who you are, with your character, with your goodness. Father, you are more personal and walk with us in situations probably much closer than we would like to admit. But Father, your word does not fail. So I pray, Lord, that this commentary on the situation that took place in Genesis 22 would rest upon us and that we would have hearts to receive it and that we would be in awe of our grand designer, of our exalted king, 
of how paramount and preeminent you need to be in our lives every second. Father, help our unbelief. Convince us. Convict us as only your spirit can do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.